Imagine that you go out uh, one evening to dinner with me and my family and maybe some other people at a local restaurant here, and while we're eating, you notice that there's a pretty big piece of broccoli stuck in my teeth. And um, I'm clearly clueless, and yet the broccoli is so obvious, and my question to you is, would you tell me that it was there? Would you tell me that it was there, or would you be one of those people to be like, I'm not, I'm not saying anything, this is, this is awkward? Sometimes it can be difficult to tell someone something as simple as that, uh, that would serve them well. God was chastening the priests in Malachi 1. The priests had the privilege and responsibility to teach the people about right worship, um, but the people brought flawed sacrifices, and instead of confronting and correcting the people, they accepted the intolerable sacrifices and offered them to God on the altar. The worship leaders were failing and were much to blame, and the consequences were devastating. Were the priests scared to say something to the people? Well, I'm not sure that was so much of the issue as was their own spiritual apathy in the whole thing. Their own spiritual apathy. Their own spiritual standards were so low, how could they hold the people to to a higher standard than themselves? Why would they do that? And my question is, does this, does, does Malachi 1, does this word to the priests apply to churches today? Do you see any similarities between the priests back then and, and elders of a church now? Israel and the church. Do you see any similarities? There are similarities. I and the other elders have a responsibility to God and to you to oversee the worship At Jerusalem Church. Yet you all have the responsibility to oversee worship at Jerusalem Church as well. We work together to promote and protect the purity of our corporate worship to ensure that we offer God delightful worship in spirit and in truth. So close assessment of our hearts and our worship practices is part of worship. How do we know what worship pleases God? Well, our only template is Scripture. That's all we have, especially the New Testament. Not tradition, not preference, not nostalgia, Scripture alone. Scripture must be authoritative in our lives. It it must serve as a worship guide. When our greatest aim in worship is the pleasure of God, and when Scripture is our touchstone, our personal tastes and preferences in worship grow increasingly irrelevant. I, I hit a nerve with some of you last Sunday, maybe a lot of you. And if I hit a nerve in you, I want to challenge you to assess your reaction. Why did you feel the way that you did? What exactly stirred inside of you last week? And I think it would be really good for you to try to identify what non-negotiable, what is non-negotiable for you in worship, get that list, and then test those things against Scripture. Does Scripture make those things non-negotiable? Identify what is sacrosanct for you and examine it according to God's word. I I think that would benefit all of us to do. Hopefully my candor last week, my openness with you, 
uh, did not cloud or conceal the big point. Uh, that you and I must repent and reform in order to offer God purer and more passionate worship in a way that brings him pleasure. God's pleasure is our greatest pleasure. You see, Israel offered God sacrifices that they wanted to give, not sacrifices that God wanted to receive. And in doing so, they showed contempt for God. Uh, I am sounding an alarm during this sermon series, that we all need to look closely at our heart and our worship practices to safeguard against idolatry and obnoxious worship that God hates. I'm sounding an alarm. Self-interest will not lead us into purer and more passionate worship. Humble submission to God's word will. And that's where we want to be. Maybe you had a chance to read Dr. Michael Horton's excellent little article that I posted on Facebook and sent out in the email. I know it was dense, but uh, some of you probably worked through that. The title of the article was Semper Reformanda, which is Latin for always reforming. And Horton was, was drawing on a helpful reformed catchphrase from Jodicus von Lodenstein. I'm sure you all read him in your spare time. He was a Dutch theologian. I don't know anything about him except this. From the 17th century, and the phrase goes like this, the church is reformed and always being reformed according to the word of God. The church is reformed and always being reformed according to the word of God. Do you know what that means? Horton explains, we are always in need of being reoriented to the word that stands above us, over us, rather, over us. When God's word is the source of our life, our ultimate loyalty is not to the past as such, or to the present and the future, but to that word above all earthly powers. Amen, Horton. Amen. I'm tracking with you. Brothers and sisters, we swear allegiance not to the past, not to the present, not to the future, but to our God and to his holy word. Our orientation in worship must simply be towards Christ and towards scripture alone. Christ alone, scripture alone. We have no other authority or standard. If you ever wonder... You sit back, you see how I lead here, how I preach here, and you wonder, what's he getting at? What, what is his agenda? What is he trying to do here at Jerusalem Church? Let me make it loud and clear what my agenda at this church is, to bring every last thing in this church under the authority and direction of God's holy word. That's my agenda. You found me out. You now know what I'm trying to do. The secret is out there. Folks, we have some broccoli in our teeth. And we need to take care of it. We need to take care of it. It would be helpful for us to know and to do something about it. What good is this sermon series if it doesn't challenge us to think and to reform our heart and worship practices according to the word of God for the pleasure of God? What good is it? If it doesn't lead us to change, Christ-exalting change. If Malachi doesn't change us, then maybe we should just shut up our doors. 
If we are not always being reformed according to the word of God, then we are not listening to God. The gospel changes us. It changes how we worship, how we think, how we do everything. And so my plea to you is let God's word convict you. Let it reform you. Let it change you so that you can offer him purer and more passionate worship. That is the aim of this series. Perhaps it would help you to just jump online for a little bit of time and to listen to last week's sermon again to make sure you didn't miss the main point. Today is a continuation of last week. It, we're still in the middle of God's second argument, which he is laying out. We're still in B of the chiasm, if that means anything to you. And it's a hard-hitting message. This book I'm recognizing is hard. It's hard, but it's glorious at the same time. Don't lose sight, though, of what verse 2 said. Don't lose sight of God's electing love, covenant, love. So let's begin with a foundational point that I think will help you interpret verses 11 through 14. Here's the point. God does everything for the greatness of his name. God does everything for the greatness of his name. First, God's name is great. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. God's name is great. Second, God does everything for the greatness of his name. 1 Samuel 22, uh, 12, 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Psalm 23, verse 3, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Referring to Israel's liberation of, uh, from Egypt. Psalm 106 verse 8 says, Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Three times in Ezekiel 20, God says he acted for the sake of his name. 1 John 2 verse 12 says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. God's objective in everything is to glorify his great name. I wish we had time to unpack Ezekiel 36. Read it sometime, particularly verses uh, 16 to the end of the chapter. In Ezekiel 36, Israel, if you can imagine, was scattered among the nations in exile, and they were profaning God's holy name. So God promised to vindicate the holiness of his great name so that the nations would know that he is the Lord. His vindication would come, this is very important, from assembling his people from the nations, cleaning them of their sin and idolatry, changing their hearts, putting his spirit inside of them, and causing them to obey his commands carefully. Ezekiel 36 is a beautiful picture of God's gracious salvation, but it also foreshadows God's spirit dwelling in his people, not in a building, in his people. God will make his name great among the nations by saving people from the nations and building them into this glorious and beautiful cathedral of worship. And then the nations will see the greatness of God's name in the pure and passionate worship of God's people. Israel continued to desecrate and malign God's great and holy name in Malachi's day. 
in order for the nations to see the greatness of God's name, God's people, they needed to revere his great name in pure and passionate worship that brought pleasure to God. God does everything for the greatness of his name. Now verse 11, follow along with me. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. What is God promising in that verse? God will make his name great among all the nations of the earth. Where does the sun rise, my friends? In the east. Where does the sun set? In the west. Dr. Ian Duguid says that phrase is a literary feature that uses two extremes to incorporate everything in between. From east to west, God's name will be great among the nations. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Psalm 48, verse 10, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Isaiah 45, verse 6. God's promise was to make his name great among all the nations. Now imagine how hearing that, how did that sound to Israel? Israel, God's chosen people, the nations would worship God's great name and not exclusively in Jerusalem. Can you see that in the text? This is shocking and convicting. Israel was offering God unacceptable sacrifices from the temple in Jerusalem, yet the day was coming when incense would rise from every place in honor and fear of God's name. Israel offered God impure worship from the temple in Jerusalem, yet the day was coming when pure offerings would be given from every place in honor and fear of God's great name. You see, God's glorious plan of salvation includes the nations. The nations. Do you remember the promise God made to Abraham? And I will make of you a great nation. A great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Here it comes. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. God would save people by grace through faith from all the nations and make his name great among them. This was, this was shocking for Israel. You see, God authorized Jerusalem as his officially sanctioned site of worship. Now God was saying that in the future, there is a a day that is coming when incense and pure offerings would be given from east to west in every place. That's revolutionary. God would make the temple of Jerusalem, the temple of Jerusalem obsolete and extend worship beyond its walls? Exactly. That's exactly what he was saying. See, worship in the temple in Jerusalem pointed ahead to worship in the preeminent temple, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Jesus Christ fulfilled the temple symbolism. The building and its furnishings only ever served to point ahead to a person. Do you understand that? It's the Old Testament. 
Jesus said, I will build my church. Well, what kind of building? What's he doing? Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 expands the concept, has an interesting angle on this. Paul talked about Jesus Christ being the cornerstone, a person being the cornerstone of a magnificent superstructure. He told the Ephesians that they, people, were being joined together in Christ and growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And he said, verse 22, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus is building a beautiful superstructure. Jesus is building a grand cathedral, a house of worship. And it has nothing to do with a stage or an altar or pews or a narthex or carpet or paint or any inanimate object. Jesus is rescuing sinners from the nations, uniting them to himself by grace through faith, assembling them together in himself and growing them into a holy temple of God. Jesus is building a superstructure with people in order for God to dwell in them, in the people, not in a building. We are seeing Malachi 1, verse 11, fulfilled all across the world today. Isn't it exciting to see the church expand? There are people getting saved, joining this superstructure. Jesus is putting them there. Jesus is building with them. These are exciting times. God's building isn't in Mannheim alone. It's in Christ alone. Come on, amen? Let's get worked up a little bit here. We are a part of of the superstructure, a part of it. And let us never forget that our building in Penryn is not. These walls are not our place of worship. Be very careful how you think about that. Christ is our place of worship. And we, the assembled people of God, are the place of worship. Is that truth precious to you? Do you love that? You are part of Christ's superstructure, being built and joined together with people from Finland, Russia, China, Australia, India, Sudan, Sierra Leone, Brazil, Mexico, and worship rises from all of these people united in Christ unto the glory and greatness of God's name. We are a global and trans-millennial house of worship for God's great name. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you for God's temple is holy and you are that temple? Did you know that I just quoted scripture? Dr. J.L. McKay, J.L. McKay, commented on verse 11, and he said this, the point is that Jerusalem will no longer be the focus of true worship. Jerusalem's not the point, my friends. And may I add, neither is any other building anywhere. Not the point. 
The nation of Israel, if you look at the nation of Israel today, they continue in their willful disdain for God because they reject the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God's son, the true temple. And isn't it interesting that if you look globally, that there is a myriad of people being called from the nations that are showing Israel, the nation of Israel right now, what it is to worship God in spirit and in truth, to worship by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, guided by scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. The nations are showing Israel. God continued to hammer Israel for profaning his name because of his, his name is infinitely great. God's name is profane when we offer him the wrong worship the wrong way. God's great name is profane when we offer him the wrong worship the wrong way. Verse 12, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. Well, that connects back to verses 7 and 8, which we unpacked last week. The priests and the people were polluting God's altar, which was polluting God himself. Now look at verse 13. But you say, there's that phrase again, but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Worshiping God the right way had become a nuisance for Israel. Uh, they, were, they were wearied by right worship. In fact, they snorted at it. Angry bulls snort. You know what the sound is like? <laughs> I'm snorting at it because I'm mad, and I want everybody to know. <laughs> and that's what they were doing. Israel snorted angrily and brought the priest these stolen, lame Blind, sick animals. God wanted the best, but they snorted and gave him their worst. Malachi 3.14 expressed how they felt. It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? In other words, this is useless. Why obey if it's not helping us at all? Israel's cynicism about worship and God's commands led them into offering him the wrong worship the wrong way. Saints, if we're honest, sometimes worship feels like a burden to us. Sometimes God's word feels like a burden to us. Sometimes obeying God and doing the right thing feels like a burden, like this heavy weight that we're carrying. Isn't the yoke of Jesus easy for us? Isn't his burden light? My friends, we have been rescued from hell. God's commands are not a burden, ever. They are a joy for us. Sometimes we feel wearied by worship. Sometimes we, we snort at it. And I want to help bring this home tenderly and lovingly to get you to think about a few possible applications for you. Church attendance. Church attendance. People feel bothered by coming to church. So they make excuses and they do a whole host of other things. Instead, don't they feel weak 
Don't they feel discouraged from missing out on the word and the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, with their family, with their brothers and sisters in Christ? Doesn't that throw them off? Don't they feel that? Lame animal. Not preparing for worship. Many Saturday nights as a teenager, I stayed up late having fun or watching inappropriate things on TV or whatever we were doing. And the next morning, I'd stroll tiredly into worship. I would sit there in an exhausted daze, and, and I would use prayer to grab a quick nap. Sorry, Dad. It was true. It's a confession time, man. I put it down, and it was great. Lame animal. Studying scripture in order to know God. This is a big one. Studying scripture can feel like a burden. It can be hard to understand the scripture. TV is so much easier just to to put it on. And and people feel wearied by God's beautiful and powerful word. So they give it a quick glance. And then they move on because they're more impressed with other things. And, And they move on unchanged by it. They never work hard enough. They never put in the time and the energy and the study in order to yield the the great benefit that it gives them. Lame animal. Prayer. Short bursts of monotonous and repetitious words. That's what it has become for many people. And I confess that is how it feels for me often. Lame animal. Fellowship outside Sunday with the brothers and sisters in Christ. People pack, this is interesting, people pack their schedule full of activities and leave no room for encouraging and discipling their brothers and sisters in Christ. Lame animal. Holiness. People fight sin with so little zeal. They use grace as as an excuse to disobey God. Grace. Grace. Of all things, they show somehow, uh, or they somehow forget that their body is the living sacrifice that they are to, to offer up to God every day. And in some peop- uh, cases, people take the, the scripture and they twist it and, and, and they misinterpret it in order to justify their lifestyle of sin. Lame animal. Man-made rituals, ceremonies. And traditions. I said man made. People reinvent worship according to their own preferences and assume God enjoys it. Lame animal. Can you see the myriad of ways God's people still offer him blemished animals? Impure and stale worship defames God and the greatness of his name. And and I want to give you a caution right now try not to think of other people. Think of yourself. We're talking about you. Don't say, hmm, I got a friend, Sharice. And Sharice, you hear this message right now. No, don't think of Sharice. Think of you. Focus on yourself. How might you be offering God the wrong worship the wrong way? Are you weary of biblical worship? Are you snorting at it. How might you be profaning God's great name? Now, maybe you feel like I'm throwing you under the bus that I'm driving. Whoa, pastor, man, ease up. We want to smile today. So let me add this. I get paid to preach God's word. 
Do you know how dangerous that is? Do I preach in self-interest or do I preach in worship? Do I preach in obligation or do I preach in joy? Dr. McKay offers a helpful word to pastors. The priests were bored with their duties. Having lost sight of the reality of the God they served, the duties allotted to them had become monotonous drudgery. What they were about was trivial and contemptible to them. They could take no interest in it and just did it because it brought them a living. I have been wearied by God's word. I have snorted at God's word. I have snorted and been wearied by my pastoral duties. There are Sundays I stand up and I toss God a lame animal from my heart. You got to know this series is as much for me as it is for you. I'm not off the hook because I'm the one that says it. I must repent. I must reform. Always. Evaluate your heart. Evaluate your worship practices. Don't point the finger. Look at your own heart. Look at how you do it. Is it right? Is it biblical? Can you defend what you do from Scripture or just from something that you like? What do you find yourself talking about when it comes to worship? Evaluate you. And would you do it because you love God and you just want to offer him something better than what you've been offering him? And when you do it through Jesus, you know he will be pleased with that. There are grave consequences for avoiding introspection and stubbornly persisting in your sin. God curses those who cheat him with their impure and indifferent worship. He curses them. I told you at the beginning of series, uh, at the series to expect two things. I said sharp words of rebuke from God, and I said beautiful words of grace from God. Both are coming. Both are in here. This is not a feel-good-about-yourself series, nor is it a feel-good-about-yourself book. However, it is a feel-really-good-about-Jesus book, if you read it right. This book is meant to convict you, but also to point you to Jesus Christ, whom you desperately need, and anything that pushes you to Christ is loving and is good, even if the tone is really direct and really hard to hear. You need Jesus Christ, or verse 14 will mow you down. Verse 14 describes a common worship practice at the time. People would vow or promise an acceptable sacrifice to God, but then when the time came, they defaulted on it. Instead of giving them their finest and purest male from the flock, they gave God stolen goods, blind, lame, or sick animals instead. In other words, they broke their vow and they broke God's commands, His law. They could have joyfully given the best of their flock, but they calculatingly chose to give God their least. God considered them cheats, swindlers, frauds. He cursed them, meaning they were beneath his divine judgment. God does not bless frauds 
with his glorious covenant blessings because they deliberately break his covenant. Uh, God God's, says later in Malachi 3, 9, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. They all were included. God does not like to be robbed. James summed it up in James 4, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Swindlers purposefully withhold from God what they know they should give God, and God curses them. No one, not then, not now, should expect God to bless them if they are stubbornly ignoring God's word and intentionally giving him objectionable worship. Frauds should assume themselves beneath the righteous indignation and judgment and curse of God. Folks, God is severe. We will not control him. He is severe. And some people take that And they wrongly assume that the God of the Old Testament was wrathful and condemning, but the God of the New Testament, oh, he is loving and accepting. And they imply that God has changed. God has not changed. He has been the same from the beginning until the end. He will always be the same. Read the account of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, 1 through 11, and compare it to verse 14. Give you a little background, Ananias and Sapphira gave money to God. That's a good thing. But they gave it in a fraudulent way. This is the New Testament. And what did God do? He killed them. God is fierce now and he has now as much as he has ever been. And at the same token, God is as gracious and loving now as he has ever been. Willful cheating and robbing God through fraudulent worship will bring the curse of God. And we'll talk more about curses next week. But understand, the application of this is tedious. Please listen carefully. For the humble and tender believer who deeply loves God and desires to give God pure and passionate worship and is deeply concerned about pleasing God in worship... When hearing this, they should be comforted. They should be comforted that Jesus took the curse of God for them on the cross, and therefore their imperfect but heartfelt uh, worship is gladly received by their loving Father. It pleases Him. The humble need to be comforted by that and encouraged by that. Uh, They may boldly Uh, confidently worship because Christ makes them pleasing to God. Uh, God accepts their worship and they are free and they are joyful to express their acceptable worship to God. Yet, at the same time, right beside those humble and tender hearts sit cold and hard hearts. These people arrogantly saunter through worship with no true affection for God. They go through the religious motions. They ignore God's truth and feel nothing for the gospel. And yet, stunningly, unbelievably, they say they believe in God. They label themselves Christians and naively believe that they're right with God. They offer him their worst. They expect his best and don't realize they're under his curse. What about them? What is gracious and loving for them? to make them feel good about themselves in their wickedness? 
They're frauds who should be rattled to the core by Malachi. The humbly repentant should be comforted in Christ, and the proudly fraudulent should be terrified of Christ. Same thing. I mean, same message. I don't want to preach Malachi 1 in a way that unnecessarily disheartens the humble and penitent worshiper who deeply loves God and is acceptable to God through Christ. Yet also, I don't want to preach Malachi 1 in a way that gives false assurance to the arrogant, lazy, hardened, and impenitent churchgoer who feels comfortable in their vile worship and under the wrath and curse of God. This is, do you see, this is very tedious for a pastor. I don't want to crush you, dear, dear one. But those of you, and you know you are not right with God, you should be horrified at Christ. Enough to run to him in repentance and faith so he doesn't kill you in the end. What a fine line. Texts like this release the torrent of the severity of God so that, so that we retreat to the safety of the sanctuary of God, Jesus Christ. Run into the safety. Enjoy the safety. And when you're in it, you're just, I'm worshiping boldly. I love Jesus. I know I'm imperfect, but because of Jesus, my singing, my listening, my praying, my preaching, my teaching is acceptable. It's acceptable, and he is pleased in it. Let me add this, and I hope this comforts you, saints. When God saves someone and adopts them into his family as one of his precious children, as a loving father, he supplies them with the desire for pure and passionate worship. He gives. He's a giving God. So he gives his children that desire, and they have it. And if you find yourself wanting to give God acceptable and pleasing worship, and and you're striving to do it, as best that you can by the Spirit, and you want to do it honestly, and you want to do it faithfully, you are not a fraud, nor are you beneath God's curse. Your desire and effort are evidence that you belong to Christ, that God's grace is at work in you, and that you are entirely acceptable to God and, and, and deeply loved. Hopefully that encourages you. We, we close out with God's great announcement. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God is a great king who does everything for the greatness of his name. God is a great king who does everything for the greatness of his name. God is a great king among the nations, not simply Jacob, the nations. The nations will fear him as their beloved king because it is God's agenda to make his name great among the nations. Remember Philippians 2, 9 through 11? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name That is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. God makes his name great by making the name of his son great. He is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is king. Knees bow to Christ because he is king. Tongues confess that he is Lord because he is king. God is doing great things among the nations through Jesus Christ who glorifies the Father and magnifies the greatness of his name. 
Why is God, why was God so concerned about the purity and the passion of Israel's worship? Why is God so concerned about the purity and the passion of your worship? Why does he even care? Because he will make his name great among the nations. And it is made great when his people worship him in spirit and in truth, and they proclaim the excellencies of his marvelous and glorious grace. How will your redemption glorify God among the nations if your life and your worship practices disdain his name? Let our lives, let our worship practices display the greatness of God's name among the nations. Let us preach to the nations so that they hear the greatness of God's name. Let us receive the sacraments so that the nations see the greatness of God's name. Let us pray so that the nations will hear the greatness of God's name. Let us sing so that the nations will know the greatness of God's name. Let us share testimonies of grace from our lives so that the nations will hear the greatness of God's name. Here is how. To offer God pure and passionate worship that brings him pleasure. The last two sermons, I've been pleading for you to offer it to him. Here's what it looks like. Wherever your location or whatever building you may or may not be in, worship God in spirit and in truth in the true temple, which is Jesus Christ and his beautiful people. May your sanctuary be the assembly of the saints, and may the sacrifice that you give be all of you in honorable and fearful worship and service of God. Father in heaven, thank you for these dear people. I pray for the one who is so concerned, so humble, so desiring to give you pure and passionate worship. I pray for those people that they would not be beat down and unnecessarily weighted down by this text, but that they will see that because of Jesus, they are acceptable to you. Their worship is acceptable because it's offered by faith from the heart through Jesus Christ. You don't beat us down as a father. You love us and you accept us because of Jesus, your son. So I pray for that humble and tender heart that they would hear in these very direct, very strong words from Malachi, hope in Christ. And then I pray for those who perhaps have been going to church for a long time who have really cold and hard hearts. They're going through the motions. They don't give a rip about the gospel. They don't give a rip about how they are defaming the name of God. Would you very tenderly but very firmly, by your spirit, through the preached word and the gospel, convict them of their sin and help them to return to you. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit works this out in our midst. Who needs to hear what? I don't know. I know I need to hear these words, and I need to repent and reform my lame animals I'm tossing to you on occasion, maybe often. So God, forgive me, forgive us. Forgive us as a church how we have strayed into man-made traditions and ceremonies and created things that aren't even in your Bible. Realign us, reorient us to your word alone. We are scripture alone people, and that demands of us that we make some changes. So I pray that we make the right changes, and as we go through a building project here that you may or may not have us do, I just pray that we can get our eyes off the building. It's just a building, my goodness. 
May our eyes be on Jesus and his people. Because what if, what if we got angry at each other and started bickering over something as stupid as a stage? But then what, what if with grace and love and patience and unity and differing opinions on certain things, we talk through this for the glory of Christ and we move ahead carefully and slowly doing exactly what you call us to do, which may or may not include a stage. So God, unify us around the word. Unify us around your son and help us to see that the beautiful cathedral that you are building across the nations is built with people and help us to love that. All for your glory and the great name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.